It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now, here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, good afternoon, and thank you for tuning in here to Talent Talk. It's Tuesday, and that means we're here with two wonderful guests talking about talent and also trying to maybe let us know some of their secrets about why they're so talented. So that's really kind of what the show is all about, you know, the, the incredible privilege uh, to meet, meet some of these inspiring leaders through all sorts of different uh, avenues, whether it's groups, whether it's conferences, whether it's LinkedIn or being on another podcast. Um, as I'm sort of a part of these different things, I really love to have these conversations with people. So we designed this show to bring you in on that conversation, allow you to listen in, and hopefully give you the opportunity to participate and also learn something that maybe you can take back and use down the road or maybe even tomorrow when you're at work or at home. So I uh, really love uh, kind of everything that kind of goes into that conversation and hope that you can be a part of it. Uh, as I said, uh, we're live here every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, with just a few exceptions. And But, you know, most of you come in and you access us through our podcast after we've done the live show. So a few of you kind of come in live, but then over 10,000 of you a day are coming into iTunes or listening to us on iHeartRadio. And really appreciate you, all the all the support um, and listening to all the different shows. Big thank you to everyone who's tuning in on a regular basis. And one of our big goals has been to kind of up our interaction through social media. So we'd love to have your questions, whether that's on Twitter or Facebook, uh, wherever it may be. But, you know, right now, if you want to, whether you're listening live or happen to be listening after the fact, you can tweet us right now to at PeopleG2. Use the hashtag Talent Talk, all one word. Uh, if it's live, my producer might will try to feed me in some of those questions, and we'll get them on the air. Otherwise, we'd love to keep the conversation going. Uh, if you have a question, I'm sure I can answer it, or all my guests can after the show's already happened. And love to, to keep that interaction going. But speaking of my guests, why you might be listening, uh, today we have two. Uh, first one is uh, Michael Ellers. He's the uh, Executive Vice President of Biogen. And after we're done with him and we have a little quick commercial break, we'll bring in uh, John Livesey, the speaker, author. And I was on his podcast the other day. He's a really fascinating guy. We'll get to him in the second part, but let's go and get to our first fascinating guy. Uh, Michael, welcome to the show. Chris, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, maybe what's some of the cool things you're doing or have done, and, of course, what are you doing in your current role with Biogen? Sure. Um, well, first off, let me say that uh, it's a real pleasure to be here on the show with you, Chris. I've listened to a number of your podcasts, and I've always learned uh, a little bit of new tips from people who are talking about talent management and engagement. Uh, so... Uh, Myself, my role, I'm Executive Vice President for Research and Development at Biogen. Biogen is uh, actually the world's oldest independent biotechnology company. That was, next year will be its 40th anniversary and sort of came into being in the, uh, in the starting phases of early biotech and grew into a larger uh, company over those last four decades. Uh, I came to join Biogen about a, a year ago, but I, but first off, I'd start by just saying that I'm a scientist uh, by practice and at heart. Um, I started out training in chemistry, but I have both laboratory biological science and medical training. And my main scientific emphasis has been neuroscience and cell biology. Um, my my own career started off in a very different sector. I started off in academia, where after completing my MD and PhD degrees, I joined the faculty at Duke University, where 
I ran a research laboratory in the Department of Neurobiology for, for 12 years at Duke. And then about seven years ago, I made a significant career pivot when I was approached about leading neuroscience, drug discovery, and development at, at Pfizer, and I decided to make a transition to the biopharma industry. After about six years at Pfizer, which uh, eventually included leading groups responsible for drug discovery and development in neuroscience, in pain, and rare disease, in a set of academic collaboration networks, as well as some areas like protein therapeutic design and manufacturing, I had the opportunity to join Biogen as head of R&D again just over a year ago. So in my current role, uh, what I do is I, I oversee a large team of scientists, clinicians, technologists, and uh, business professionals who do a number of things. They work to, We all work to understand molecular mechanisms of disease, to turn these basic biological discoveries into medicines, to design and execute clinical trials to test these medicines, and then to assemble a dossier of data to submit and seek regulatory approval to allow patients access to the new therapies across the globe, and, and also to seek to partner with academic laboratories and smaller biotech companies through business development. Um, and I'd say for listeners who might not have familiarity, Biogen's major emphasis is on neurological diseases, with our current medicines being some of the leading therapies for multiple sclerosis and spinal muscular atrophy, which is a rare, serious disease, often rapidly fatal in infants or children. So that's a little 90-second bio about uh, myself and my current role at Biogen. So you really talked about a lot of different things. I mean, it's quite remarkable the kind of uh, variety you've had in your career to kind of start off in science. I mean, actually in academia, then in science, actually in laboratories, and sort of kind of evolving into a place now where you're managing people. Um, that may seem like a normal, natural thing to some listeners, but uh, in my mind, that's a you made some pretty big jumps there at different times uh, throughout your career. It sounds like you were successful in doing those. Uh, maybe just to kind of back up a little bit, given your long career in this field, what sort of really got you interested or why did you really kind of step into that biotechnology field? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Well, I think fundamentally is that I, I love science. I'm fascinated by biology. I'm about applying science to the advancement of medicine. And working in biotechnology and biopharma is, in, in my view, a perfect way to link up these passions. You know, I enjoy working uh, in and with teams of creative and committed people. Uh, when I was a professor at Duke, I had opportunity to advise a number of biopharma companies, and I was just struck by the high level of commitment of those teams, of the scientific rigor, of the passion, and the potential for impact. So it's kind of that combination of uh, uh, real love for science and medicine, the desire to have impact, uh, enjoying working with creative and committed people on teams that also kind of led me along this trajectory. And, and I imagine there might even be a little bit of a maybe friendly competition. Uh, you know, when we're maybe if you're talking about two different uh, companies that might make a widget, I mean, you, you want every bit of business, you want to destroy your competition. But I imagine at some level in, it, in your field, you know, if people are making advancements that are going to help society, are going to help you, help us have better, better treatments and better uh, detections and things like that. Uh, you're in a highly competitive space, but at the same time you might be happy if someone makes a great discovery and can, can help uh, overall. So how do you kind of balance that, that need to be competitive and to be focused on bringing great things to, 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 to bear, but at the same time I'm assuming maybe being somewhat happy if your competition can also you know, reach some sort of discoveries and, and bring us to another level for uh, inside of medicine. Yeah, this is a very good question. So I'd say uh, it is very true that as a field and in the discipline, we're always rooting for each other because what we're, what we're really looking to, to do is to push the frontiers on, for new medicines, new therapeutics, 
in areas where people haven't had them. So I'm, I think we're all, all always cheering for all sides in this. And, and to a large extent, it, in this industry, it is true there are lots of collaborative networks that go on because you can't solve these big problems just as one company in many instances. So there, there, there can be a variety of, of pre-competitive interactions that go on across the sector. But you're right. I mean, that having been said, you you want to find that uh, recipe for a winning solution that will win for your uh, company, for your employees, and and for the patients that you're looking to to find real new solutions for. And um, look, I mean, the competition for talent, uh, since that's what we're talking about, is uh, it's fierce and uh, across the globe and certain areas it's particularly fierce it's probably arguably nowhere more fierce in this particular sector than the Boston Cambridge area where Biogen is headquartered and where the majority of our R&D organization is located but it's, uh, it's not just there but that's an example of a particularly a fierce competition for talent and uh, we think a lot about that because competing successfully for talent requires a very active commitment in both Recruitment and retention. Uh, in some ways, this is it's, you know common probably across companies, but in some ways it's quite specific because we deal in select uh, technical and medical areas. I would say on the recruitment side, we work quite diligently to maintain close networks across the sector, other companies in the industry, academic laboratories, medical centers. We put a high premium on personal relationships with our scientists, our technologists, our clinicians, our business professionals, and particularly in R&D, deep knowledge of the best technical, scientific, and clinical talent is, is key. You know, it helps that, that Biogen has a fantastic brand in this sector and a long legacy of very strong science and medical impact. Um, we value that brand and work hard to maintain it as a talent magnet so that people can associate a Biogen with both the ability to have an impact but an ability to really grow and advance uh, in a career in, in biotechnology. Um, yeah, but maybe, had, you know, Michael, how, how do you take something like someone who's supposed to be the best uh, in their field, maybe they have an incredible specialty, um, but how do you temper that with, you know, their talent with maybe the fit inside of the company, right? Because they could be the best of the best and, I don't know, whatever that, that thing may be. They may be the smartest person out there when it comes to particular needs. They could also be a disaster inside your company or maybe not work well in a team or, um, you know, whatever that may be. How do, how, do you, how do you kind of balance those two needs as you bring people in? Yeah, that's right. It, it's a, it is a very important thing because you, you, you know, first and foremost, this is a real team activity, which is not always what you think of if you're thinking about solving scientific or medical problems. But these are these are big ones where uh, team oriented uh, behaviors and and actions and effectiveness are really key. So we look very strongly at that. The a deep expertise in the area is kind of the starting point. That's a little bit of the just where you get out of the gate. Then beyond that, it's really are these people who can uh, function well in a multidisciplinary environment that have the capacity to sort of see work through the eyes of others when you're dealing in a multidisciplinary way? Do we see the, the prospect for influence, vision, and uh, uh, leadership growth? Uh, we look for all those all those things, and we layer that on top of kind of the baseline, which is a strong command of their discipline area. Do you, do you also have those situations where maybe um, their ability to function, uh, to lead a team or to have leadership skills or do some of the other things you're talking about uh, to be fairly irrelevant, that what you really need for them is to go in there and do really great science and come up with, you know, do discoveries or, or whatever it may be, and, and the focus is less on the people stuff? Uh, is it the, those situations ever occur? Uh, it can. And, and in fact, we do give a lot of thought about making sure that we have tracks for people who, who want to select for advancement, career advancement in those different dimensions. 
we're very conscious of maintaining a robust uh, technical track, if you will, for where depth really matters for us. Uh, but and at the same time, having a little bit of a more standard kind of managerial track, where it's roles and responsibilities for larger groups, larger sections of the company, etc. But we we work to identify to identify and value both in that way, and to ensure that people get matched up with how they see their own career growth progressing. The last thing you want in this particular area is to have everybody be. Uh, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep. You need a combination because you need mm-hmm. uh, depth of expertise, and then you need to to couple that in groups with people who've got vision across a variety of areas. So, so I look at the things that you've described um, and, and and sort of the path that your career has gone as well. And, uh, you know, I don't see anything in it that's easy. Now, maybe you might argue our, 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 our experiences and our brains are different, but I, like I say, academia, that's not, that's not an easy thing to do, to go in and do research. That's not easy to do. To do all of this science that you're doing is not easy. And then and managing people, managing the types of people that you have to, to kind of oversee is not easy. So my kind of my question is, is what, what drives you to continue to take on these challenges and to uh, to continue to expand in a new area. Did, did you, did you, have you ever thought about that? Is there something maybe kind of really pushing on you that makes you kind of go into the the, the, the next area? Uh, yeah, it's a, I think it's a very good question. There's a, it is a little bit of uh, truth into the fact that when you're in a larger biopharma company, the, the division, which is always a little bit of the most puzzling for people who are coming from outside of it, is, is R&D. You know, because it it couples a variety of things, and it's I often say it's uh, you get good at it when you know that you can turn uh, a set of soloists into an orchestra, then then you can create a really great R and D organization. But uh, look, it's in terms of me, I I actually find it amazing. That I get paid to do what I do. Uh, I get to wake up each day and work with great people and do cool science and grapple with big questions in medicine and really have an impact it's for me i you know i guess it's that feeling of firing on all cylinders that's constantly stimulating i learn something new every day uh, basically and that's quite rewarding uh and it's it's a lot about mentoring junior colleagues as well and knowing that in putting all that together at the end of the day what you're what you can produce is something that really has an impact for patients and families. So that's really what motivates me. Oh, that's great. Well, I imagine with all that you're doing uh, that maybe you might pick up a book from time to time, and one of our kind of favorite things to talk about on this show is what, what, are, what are people reading right now, and maybe if you have something you're reading now or recently finished, uh, if you could share that with us, and uh, so our, our uh, listeners might be able to go and check that out. Okay, okay. So that's a good question. Um, well, I actually do a lot of reading. I'm, I'm a fan of both uh, classic and contemporary French and Spanish literature, so I'm always reading one book in French and one book in Spanish. Uh, kind of depends on what I'm reading about. So uh, right now I'm reading let's, a book by uh, a Spanish author, Carlos Ruiz Safón, called El Labrinto de los Espíritus, or The Maze of Spirits, which is... This is kind of the fourth in his installment, kind of contemporary fiction, fun, mystery type of page-turner uh, fun thing. Um, and I'm also reading kind of the latest book by the French author Jean-Christophe Ruffin. It's called The Tour de Monde de Roi Zibling, which is the world tour of King Zibling, which uh, is kind of his most recent novel. So I'll Usually fiction, and usually uh, either classic or contemporary French and Spanish literature. Well, I would say that's got to be the most fascinating uh, response we've ever gotten, and certainly a first that someone suggested two books that were not in English. Uh, so that's fantastic. So I know we have people uh, listening from all over the They're world. Translated. So hopefully, They're um, translated. Uh, it's, it's a great suggestion. Yeah, and I'm sure if they're not already, they'll probably soon be translated. They're well-known authors. 
Yeah, and and certainly uh, we love to get. This is why we ask this question because it's so varied on what people are reading and what's influencing them, uh, and we love to kind of have that variety instead of just talking about that one book that everyone's read or everyone tells you you're supposed to read. Um, you know, to have that variety of what smart people, uh, people that we admire, are thinking about and are reading uh, is, is really great. So. Uh, it's kind of why it's always a always a standard question for us. We, we change the questions from time to time, but that one always sticks because we get such great uh, answers. Uh, you know, an old question that we used to always ask our guests, and we haven't asked in a long time, and I, I, it kind of popped in my head as we were talking here today. And so uh, we'll see we'll see what you come up with. But uh, you know, is there someone in your past um, that maybe had a really big influence on? who you are today or maybe on your leadership style. And if there is, maybe you could kind of talk about them or describe them and why that is. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think on the professional side there were uh, quite a few. You know, um, I owe a great deal to my Ph.D. advisor, uh, Rick Huguenier, who's a professor at Johns Hopkins University where I did my uh, M.D. and Ph.D., He, who kept me at the time, an often disgruntled graduate student, <laughs> focused and encouraged. He really instilled an excitement about science and and uh, continues to this day to be a source of, uh, of wisdom and advice. I, I think one advantage of coming from having had a, a fairly extended uh, academic career as well is, is this emphasis on mentorship, which uh, really persists in that arena in a way that develops relationships that just never go away. So it's it's both a two-way street, of course, but it's also things that that, that that last independent of where people are. So it's really a lot about the person. Uh, I was heavily influenced by uh, people that took a risk on me over the years. Uh, I can think of uh, a guy named Dale Purvis, who was founding chair of the Department of Neurobiology at Duke, and he took... Uh, took the kind of questionable step of, of hiring me into the department when I was very early on in my career without much postdoctoral research experience. And he served as an example to me of someone willing to take risks, to change fields and directions, and and to do so with, uh, with deep rigor at, at every step. You know, I think everybody who goes through a, a career where they're making just different steps or moving from one area to another, find those people who have helped uh, spark their, give them the, the confidence to be able to move into different areas. I, uh, I certainly derive considerable scientific inspiration from my, my late Duke colleague, Larry Katz, who was an incredibly creative, energetic guy. who was simply infectious. And, and early in my industry career, I was highly influenced by my first uh, manager, Rod McKenzie at Pfizer and an, uh, an advisor, Thomas Bartfeit Scripps, who both went out of their way to, to teach me the art and science of drug discovery and development when I knew very little about it and challenged me over and over to get out of my comfort zone, which, by the way, is not an easy thing to do for a former full professor. So uh, they must have seen something. So I've been fortunate to have many superb mentors at, at every career stage, including now. And that all has reinforced the view in my mind that, that mentorship is, is this lifelong two-way endeavor that is a critical ingredient of a successful career. Well, I, I can't agree with you more. And, I, you know, if you're not mentoring someone right now, go find someone to mentor. And if you're not being mentored right now, go find someone to mentor you because it is just a, is a very rewarding uh, situation, uh, whether you're doing the mentoring or being mentored. It, it, it's a... I think it's one of those necessary things that successful people seem to always have is uh, great mentors, and they're always uh, out there mentoring as well. So, uh, you know, uh, final question uh, here before we wrap up. How can people get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more about uh, Biogen? Well, the, uh, I think the best way to learn about Biogen is simply go to the website, which is www.biogen.com. There's a host of other links and things that are that are there about the company and the company leadership and the things that are that we're doing and the medicines that we're trying to develop. Well, Michael, we really appreciate you being on the show here today and giving our listeners a, a lot of uh, unique 
and uh, kind of great stuff into what you're doing and in your career and experience. So thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, Chris, it was really my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right, we'll be back after this uh, quick commercial break, and we'll have our second guest, John Lisey, on. Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that People G2 offers something different. At People G2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system, or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news, or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or PeopleG2.com. Hey, welcome back to the Town Talk Radio Show. If you're uh, just joining us, you may have just missed a great interview by uh, Michael Ellers, uh, Executive Vice President of Biogen. You'll want to catch his uh, interview as well as this one later on on iTunes or iHeartRadio. Uh, in a week or two as we get that uh, published and wrapped up as a podcast. But I want to go ahead and bring in my next guest, uh, John Livesey. He's an author, speaker, a podcast host. I was on his podcast. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and don't forget, you can uh, tweet a question right now to us at, at PeopleG2. Use that hashtag Talent Talk, or you can just watch the live tweeting going on there as well. But, John, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm really looking forward to this. Well, it should be good. So we had a good we had a good practice run over on, on your side. So hopefully we don't mess this one up. But, uh, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and all the you know kind of cool things you're currently up to? Sure, I'm known as the Pitch Whisperer, and I help people go from invisible to irresistible. And usually that's enough to get people to say, "Hmm, that's interesting. What's a Pitch Whisperer?" Or how do you get people to go from invisible to irresistible? And I love helping people get a great elevator pitch because, as you know, everyone needs one and few people have one. So I love getting people to be storytellers. And upcoming in October, I'm going to be speaking at the Coca-Cola CMO Summit on innovation in Silicon Valley about how to turn technical stuff into stories that people can easily grasp and want to learn more about. Well, that's uh, that is fantastic stuff right there. you got a lot going on. I know you're kind of all the different areas that you've been able to get into, whether on TV or uh, books um, and, and your, your speeches and presentations. Um, you've got a lot of, of, of great things that are kind of going on. So we'll try to get, get get to each one of those here in a minute. I know kind mm-hmm. of at the, end, at the end of the day, you know, what we do hope is that the messages that people get from our presentations uh, are maybe very specific. So what are you hoping that people, when you're actually presenting, let's talk about it, uh, your event there with Pepsi. When you're going there presenting... Oh, Coca-Cola. Oh, they're big art rivals. Wow, wow. So uh, when you go there to present, you know, what are you trying to make sure that they get, especially from a leadership perspective? Yes, that the old way of selling and marketing no longer works, which is to run a commercial and push your message out or even run an ad in a magazine or whatever. It's all just pushing messages out and people are uh, OD'd on it and the younger generation in particular is not having it. So you want to become magnetic and become a storyteller. So what I really want people to realize is you need to learn to become a storyteller and the best way to do that is to tell your story of origin. Where did you come up with the idea of what you're doing? And when you pull people in with stories as a pushing your message out, then you become magnetic. People want to work with you. They want to hire you. In fact, Jeff Bezos at Amazon has said, no more PowerPoints. 
have a, you have to all present what your information is in a narrative. So even if you're not trying to sell something, even just to get your idea across or your idea implemented internally, everybody needs to learn how to become a storyteller. So if we could talk a little bit about storytelling then and sort of how do we make it impactful? How do we get people to do it or how do we become better at it ourselves? I mean, I know for me, I, I had to work at it. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to think about what the stories were. I had to fine tune the stories. Um, yes. I still struggle with having a good elevator pitch. I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty good with the story, but the elevator pitch stuff, because what we do kind of scares people sometimes. So I noticed my elevator pitch would get people's attentions, but it also would scare them to death. So, mm. you know, it, Maybe talk a little bit about you know where where do we want to focus? What's what's the what's at the heart of the storytelling that maybe people need to understand? Well, people remember our stories, not our numbers. So that's the first key thing. So that it goes into why I want to learn how to become a storyteller. And you want to take people on a journey. It's um, paint the picture. It's exposition. Who, what, where, when, and then you explain that that. Uh, person has some kind of challenge to overcome because people love to hear a story where there's something to do. Ideally, they're able to see themselves in your story. And then there's, you know, they overcome the problem or the obstacle and there's a solution, their life is better. And then at the very end, this is where a lot of people forget, is there some kind of resolution to that story? In other words, now that all that's happened, here's what happened. So I think it'd be easier if I gave an example of a story and then we can use that four-part structure and say, oh, I see how you told a short story, but it had it hit each point. What do you think? Let's do it. Okay. So one of my clients, Martin, came to me, and I work with people on not only their storytelling skills, but their confidence skills, because you need to tell a story with a lot of confidence. So I have people write down something I call stacking your moments of certainty, which just simply means you write down four or five times when you knew you nailed it and had a good outcome, whether it's asking somebody on a date, getting a job, getting whatever it is. So for him, he said, well, for me, this exercise is very powerful because I remember that I was born in South America, but when I grew up in the Netherlands, but when I turned 18, my parents took me back to South America, dropped me off naked in the Amazon jungle to survive because in my culture, that's a rite of passage into manhood. And I said, "Woo, that gives me goosebumps. That's, that's a good story, but let's craft it a little bit. I said, all right, what lessons did you learn in the Amazon jungle? I said, well, I learned how to focus and pivot and persevere. I said, great. Now we're going to take those lessons from the Amazon jungle to the concrete jungle of being an entrepreneur. And when he had that practice in home, he won a pitch contest and got his startup funded because the investor said, wow, that guy can survive the Amazon jungle. He'll be able to survive the jungle in the concrete business world. Oh, that's a great story. And, uh, you know, being able to fine tune it, being able to take it to a point where people can understand the story and then what that means in context, which is sort of what I was hearing you say. Mm-hmm. I know for, for me, one of the important things I learned about storytelling was that I noticed that people try to tell sometimes a story where they're trying to get everyone to, 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 to maybe encompass it, right? They want everyone to be included. They want everyone to hear that story and want to buy from them. And for me, I was a better storyteller when the story helped them decide, mm-hmm. oh, yes, I need your business, or nope, I got nothing. I have no no need for what you're doing. And they can understand that, right? So help me clarify and help them clarify, are you really going to be a potential client for me, or can I help you, or maybe not? And that's okay, too. Um, so it was more of a distinguisher than it was this, you know, trying to trying to trying to take a bucket of water and get everybody wet. I'm instead trying to just get one or two <laughs> people, uh, if that makes sense. Well, yes, it goes back to what a good elevator pitch is: is who do I help and what problem do I solve? And when I solve that problem, what's their life like? So if we go back to the Martin example, there was exposition. I said he was 18 years old. Uh, you know, you knew he was in South America. And sometimes when he was practicing, he would forget to say it's a rite of passage in his culture. And I said, if you don't say that, it sounds like child abuse. (laughs) So you (laughs) you need to paint a picture so people are in the story with you. The key that what you're saying is when you're trying to tell your story as a selling tool, you don't need to make yourself the hero. You can make yourself Yoda to the person like Luke Skywalker who's going on the journey. And so if the person who's hearing the story can identify with Luke Skywalker, or in this case, Martin, 
and that you helped Martin or you, you're Yoda and you helped Luke Skywalker, then they can see themselves in that story and going on that hero's journey and say, ah, I need a Yoda. I need a Sherpa to get me up the mountain. Um, whatever it is that you're going to be offering, that that's the key to telling a story that will make people want to hire you or buy from you. Well, it's fascinating stuff, and um, and I know your your speeches are as well. I think kind of looking <laughs> at uh, some uh, some stuff online that people have said about you that you really help them identify strengths and weaknesses, uh, you know, in their own leadership and, and sales abilities. So, do you feel it's important for people to focus on their strengths or is there a balance between your growth and from strengths and maybe really looking at your weaknesses uh, for, as a way to, to, to get a stronger presence? Well, my big goal anytime someone engages me to give a talk is that the audience has instant takeaways, whether it's, oh, and now I know I can improve my elevator pitch, or oh, now I see that, uh, for example, I wasn't telling a story here. I was boring people. Now I know how to inspire them, or... When one particular person, I said, you know, if you think of yourself as a co-pilot with the person that's going to buy from you, and then you eventually land the plane when you get them to say yes or no. Uh, but it's like when you're on an airplane, I just flew in from being in Michigan. You know, when they said, you know, we're landing in L.A., nobody stood up and said, what, we're landing? We all know we're going to land. And so at the same time is when you're having a conversation with someone, no matter what you're selling, you're going to land the plane. And that's what that gentleman was saying. He's like, I just keep having these conversations and I never land the plane. That's my weakness. Now I know I have to reverse engineer what I'm going to be talking about and realize that we're going to land the plane and start getting agreement as to if we do all these things, we're going to land the plane, right? So I think knowing what you do well and what you don't do well in the storytelling process and the selling process is the key to getting more sales. Yeah, and so it sounds like you need to identify where you're really maybe – what you're good at, and then of course, if there's areas you're kind of saying, if there's areas where you're not doing as well, figuring those out so you can do better at them. Um, I guess you know, I was kind of thinking, there are certain people who are naturally seem naturally might be the wrong word, but maybe they had a good mentor, maybe they had good examples, but for mm-hmm. some reason, they're good at telling stories. Uh, one of my buddies, if he could tell you a story about the time that he opened the dictionary, and you will sit and listen to him, <laughs> and he's so good at the way his in his inflections, his articulation, the, the details he chooses to tell you, the ones he leaves out. I mean, he's just really good at it, mm-hmm. and I'm always fascinated trying to learn from him uh, in that. So, uh, you know, how do people take that to the next level? How do they become stronger at at that uh, at that practice so that ultimately they can sell themselves better, whether it's they can get a better job, maybe they can get a, a better mm-hmm. partner, maybe they, uh, whatever it may be, right? But, uh, how, how do they take that to the next level? Well, it isn't something that just naturally comes to anybody. Uh, I think even the best, even if it is a skill you have, you can always make it better, whether you're playing golf, hitting any sport, any actor, everybody keeps working at what they want to learn how to do so that they can get better at it. Um, so that's the first awareness is, oh, don't tell yourself you can't do it because I don't have natural storytelling abilities. It's literally in all of our DNA. You know, we In the caveman days, we used to sit around the campfire and tell stories to each other, and now we stand around the glow of PowerPoint slides. <laughs> but um, yeah. uh, this, this ability to tell a story, if you just have the structure in mind, the exposition, the problem, the solution, and some kind of resolution that goes on, again, with Martin, you know, the, he – you know, figured out how to survive the Amazon jungle. That was his solution. And then the resolution was he got his startup funded by having this great story of tenacity. And that's what people remember. If he just got up there and said, I'm somebody who has a lot of perseverance and I never give up, nobody would give him money. So I think if you realize that part of a good storytelling is that you have to have those parts. And then there's genres of storytelling, right? It's what, figure out what genre you want to be in, uh, whether it's rags to riches, you know, like Cinderella. I mean, you know, Johnny Walker Scott uses that genre to tell the story of how Johnny Walker used to be this poor Scottish farmer and now he became Johnny Walker. Um, there's another genre of rebirth. That's a great movie. Uh, it's a wonderful life. And then from there, you know, that's what Prudential uses and says retirement is your third act. It's literally a rebirth. So if you figure out how to tell a good story and then figure out what genre you want to use, you'll really become more confident in your storytelling skills. 
So, uh, you know, uh, it, I think it's kind of natural for anyone who deals with people all the time. If you're in sales, you're an entrepreneur, you're a CEO, um, uh, that you, these kinds of things make a lot of sense. But what if you're someone who doesn't manage anyone? You are, let's just pick a position. Maybe you are an accounts receivable clerk. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's not your job necessarily to tell stories on a regular basis. You, you, <laughs> you have your thing. You do a good job. But I, I think it's still important for that person to have this ability because they may want to move ahead in their career. They may – there are other places where this may come into play, but it's not a natural thing for someone in that position who's not in a leadership role, who's not in this po- – thrust in a position to tell stories all day long. You know – do you, a do you think it's important for them or do you agree with me there and b you know is it where do they start if they got to take baby steps mm-hmm. in that regard is, is there a place that they should start well first i absolutely agree with you whether you manage somebody or not you're still managing your own life and your own career so yes you need to think of your own uh life and your career as a brand and be known for something right if you're known for accuracy like a Rolex watch, right? Boom, that's great. But be known for something in your life that you're really great at and don't be afraid to promote yourself that way. So in the case you were talking about, someone's an accounts receivable, is that what it was? So yeah, their job yeah. is to um, make sure that the money comes in and there's not a bunch of accounts going to collectibles, right? So the best way to start being a storyteller is just start using an anecdote, an analogy. You know what? We've got so much money coming in this this month compared to other months. It's like a tidal wave of abundance pouring in. Oh, right. well, suddenly accounts receivable is a little more interesting because you gave us a visual image. Mm-hmm. So start yeah. using, start realizing that you are a brand, no matter whether you manage somebody or not, and then let everybody else get excited about the, you know, the wave that's coming in and. You know, congratulate you or be, feel like they're part of the wave. And, you know, we couldn't have done it without the sales team and the marketing team. And, you know, if, if somebody in accounting ever congratulated or uh, thanked somebody else for doing their job that allowed all this cash to come in so we all can, you know, imp- invest in new equipment or maybe we're all going to get a raise or a bonus or who knows. But that right. you could be the messenger of good news. Well, I love that you've reminded us about that we all have our own brands. Um, this is advice that other guests have brought up, and uh, one I can think of specifically, Steve Canal, the, he runs the uh, Miller Coors division of their kind of entrepreneurial uh, section, and so he has come on the show a few times and and talked about how having your own brand, everybody should have their own brand, how they interact with people, what they put out there on social media and in business. It doesn't matter where you are in your career, whether you're just starting off or mm-hmm. what have you. Having your own brand is super important, and that doesn't mean you have to be outlandish. It doesn't mean you have to be something you're not, but being very clear about about what your brand is is super important so people know what you're looking for what what to suggest you for who who to put you in contact with um who might want to you know hire you or 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 date you or whatever it may be um you know that that, that having that out there is so important so i appreciate you kind of reminding us of that lesson it's 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 a really great one my pleasure you know the best way to you know, figure out, like for me, I'm the pitch whisperer. That's People can't maybe remember my name or the title of my book, The Successful Pitch, but a lot of people can remember the pitch whisperer because it's something that hooks you in. It's something un- unexpected. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and of course, the horse whisperer giving us that, uh, you always have that Hollywood thing. I any, Anyone is a whisperer, I always think of that first and then I go back yes. to whatever they said. But <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Well, you know, horse whisperers calm people down. I do the same thing with helping people right. with their pitch, calming them down. Calm their stories down, right? Get them focused. <laughs> or calm great. their nerves down and then get them into a story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how do you see your own success then through your life? You've done a lot of cool stuff. You're continuing to do a lot of cool stuff. So what, what, kind of drives you to to make others better and continue to shine yourself well my big goal is to help as many people as possible get off the self-esteem roller coaster of only feeling good about themselves if their numbers are up or they just got a promotion and bad about themselves if they get a no or don't have a good month or a year in their sales career so that is 
really, I was on it myself, and you know, you don't really stay happy very long, and you're just focusing on the next problem. So if I can get people to realize that who they are is bigger than what they do for a living, ironically, they'll be more successful without looking outside of themselves for the feedback that they're okay or feeling good enough about themselves. So my easiest way to help people get off that roller coaster is to teach as many people as possible how to be good storytellers. Well, and that's another, another little gem there about, you know, our, our self-confidence and our self-worth and all that coming from inside and from whatever, whatever it is we're doing or from, you know, apart from the people we hang around with and our networks and things like that, but that it not be determined by did we hit our sales number or is our company, you know, struggling in a recession or whatever. I mean, you're right. A lot of people that when, when things shift, they, they shift their self-worth, even though it has nothing to do with them. Mm-hmm. I think sort of outside factors really impacting their lives in a way that shouldn't. If they were good last year when sales were good, and mm-hmm. this year there's a recession, that doesn't mm-hmm. mean they're not good anymore. I mean, that, that's, exactly. but yet, but yet that's how people see themselves. Or, And I, I hate I hate the one with the raises because I think there's some research out there that if you give someone a raise, it lasts like three or four weeks, the happiness, mm-hmm. they yes. remember it. You know, they get like one or two pay periods, and then it's over. Then it's just back to baseline. <laughs> and so if your self-worth is based on a raise, I mean, you're not happy for very often in your life. <laughs> no. Most people just spend yeah, just, whatever they make. That's why it's so important to try and right? save something before you start spending. <laughs> right, right. Well, I know in one of your keynotes on staying true to yourself in disruptive times, uh, you say that people can either embrace disruption uh, or they can be terrified of it. So can you talk a little bit about this outcome of either being uh, on one end of the spectrum um, and maybe how do people try to embrace it a little bit more than fear it? Sure. Well, you know, there's three choices. You either embrace it, you ignore it, or you're afraid of it. And Unless you choose to embrace it, let's look at companies as a versus just a person to start with. Blockbuster kind of ignored it <laughs> versus Netflix, right. who said, hmm, we've got to figure out some way to do something besides just mailing these CDs to people as an alternative to going and renting them. Um, and they kept evolving. So I think just being aware of we're all living in times that are extremely unprecedented in terms of the rapid exponential growth of change. So if you're a truck driver, for example, and ironically, that's the number one job in every state in America is truck drivers. Well, if you see self-driving cars coming, guess what? Self-driving trucks are going to come in our lifetime. You can't ignore it or be so scared of it. You've got to figure out a way to either reinvent yourself or be part of it so that you don't just get disruptive one day and say, you know what, we the trucks are going to drive themselves now. We don't need you. Um, so that's the big thing is realize it's going to happen, and it's probably going to happen faster than you think it will. And then you can embrace it and be curious about life as opposed to just, I've always, I've only want to, I don't want to learn one more thing, right? I only know Facebook. I don't want to learn Twitter or vice versa, or God forbid, I don't want to learn Snapchat. If you keep cutting yourself off as to learning new things, you will not be part of it. You know, I think there's one way to look at the world. Those people who take Uber and those who don't. That's an easy way to look at. You know, Uber disrupted the taxi industry. You either embrace that or you're like, forget it. I'm still going to call a cab. I don't, I'm, and they're like, okay. Um, <laughs> Well, they didn't just disrupt it. They made it better. I mean, you're right. The yeah. taxi people just completely ignored the problem that it's hard to order a taxi. You don't know when they're going to show up. You have no way to, to rate mm. them or know who's going to come get you. I mean, you, they just ignored this entire problem of the experience because mm-hmm. there just wasn't any else. They didn't have to, right? The yeah. taxi people had done anything close to what Uber did. Uh, Uber probably wouldn't ever have ever you know, been able to, to come and disrupt the way they did. But you're right. They just ignored it. And we all have to have had smartphones for it to work. So, you know, the timing is everything. Um, You know, talk about an industry that's being disruptive. Look at television. Remember when there were just three networks? And then HBO and Showtime came along and they started winning Emmys. And now they think they're on top of the world. Next thing you know, Amazon and Netflix are winning Emmys. So you can't assume that if you're at the top of your career, your business, your company's at the top, that it's going to stay that way. There's always going to be new things coming, so you have to figure out how to stay ahead of the curve. And the best way is to stay curious, not be afraid, embrace it, don't ignore it, 
And finally, just trust yourself to figure it out. So uh, I'm wondering uh, if there's a good book that maybe you recently read or you're reading right now that you might tell us about. Mm, yes, I had the pleasure of interviewing Isaac Litsky, who wrote a book called Eyes Wide Open. Isaac uh, went blind at 25 years old and runs his own company, uh, has an amazing TED Talk, and he talks about how he thought his life was going to be very small and sad as a blind person at 25. And he said, wait a minute. I've lost my sight, but not my vision for what I want my life to be. It's great stuff. That sounds like a fantastic book. Um, we've had really incredible uh, suggestions this uh, this show with uh, different types of books to, to, to check out. So, um, you know, it's really been a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, I'm glad that we got to connect again. How can people get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more about you? Maybe they want you to come and speak. Maybe they want you to help them with their pitch or telling stories. Uh, maybe they want to tune into your podcast. Whatever it is, what's the best sure. way for people to find out more about you? The best, easiest way is just go to my website, johnlivesay.com. If you can't remember that, the podcast is called The Successful Pitch with a P, not a B. <laughs> and uh, that's the title of my book. And <laughs> if you uh, can't remember any of that, I'm on Twitter at, at John underscore Livesey, L-I-V as in Victor, E-S-A-Y. And finally, just Google The Pitch Whisperer and I'll come right up. Well, John, again, thank you so much for having uh, uh, this uh, kind of make some time for us and being on the show today and also for having me on your show. Love to have you come back, give us an update, and uh, hear all the cool things that you keep doing. Oh, that'd be terrific. Thanks. It's been a lot of fun talking with you. All right. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening. Hopefully you gained something that you can use in your own career uh, or at home or wherever it may be. Um, next week, my guest will be uh, Patty Grimm, author, speaker, and business coach with Advantage Training. And then also Jim Palmer, author of Just Say Yes. So quite a few authors uh, coming up. Uh, I think I'll be live in studio even next week. So a little bit of a shift instead of always being on the road. But until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2.